welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series nine and episode five, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son is our topic today. We're in Luke chapter 15, uh, the second half of this uh, chapter. Our last episode, uh, the first half of this chapter, covered two other important parables, and they're all parables that are linked together. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. If you haven't heard that episode, it's well worth linking these two together because they're so closely connected. Our text is going to be Luke 15 verses 11 to 32, which we'll read in sections uh, and we will uh, discuss this amazing parable, one of the best known stories of all time, one of the best known parables of Jesus, an amazingly powerful story. Let's just set the context briefly, first of all, and remind you of the position in the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus that this particular a parable falls in. Well, we're on the way to Jerusalem and the story of Jesus uh, has been about going to Jerusalem for quite a long time. And if you've been following episode by episode, you'll be extremely well aware of that. This great trip to Jerusalem was Jesus's final main movement in his ministry, having spent three years in Galilee Uh, and had a huge influence there, travelled all the way around the area, built up a huge following uh, and done some wonderful things in Galilee. Now everything has changed and as has been described, particularly by Luke's gospel, uh, the journey is southward from the north of the country in Galilee through the central areas of Samaria down to the southern area of Judea and to the great capital city of Jerusalem. Jesus clearly says that's where he's heading. And Luke covers the story in considerable detail, which is why, for the most part, in this series, up until this point in the previous series, we've been in Luke's gospel. He has a particular interest in this era of Jesus' ministry. John also has provided some information about two private visits that Jesus made to Jerusalem at different festivals during this period. Those events have just happened. They were private and brief. But Jesus is planning a public and major entry into Jerusalem to confront the religious authorities and ultimately to bring about the events that would lead to his death and resurrection. This is the context. As he's been travelling along the road, there have been huge crowds gathering. Uh, Luke references that on a number of occasions. On one occasion, he describes the crowds as being many thousands and people trampling on one another uh, as they were trying to get close to Jesus. And also traveling with him are his disciples, the 12, the apostles, and also wider group of disciples traveling, people who'd left Galilee for a period of months, left their jobs and homes and were traveling with him. Also traveling with him, uh, coming and going, were opponents who continually appear in the narrative in Luke. And of course, they're they're part of the narrative of this very parable. They're in the immediate context of this parable. These opponents are members of the religious establishment, notably at this point, Pharisees and teachers of the law. It seems they've come from Jerusalem. They're connected to the Jerusalem religious authority, the council called the Sanhedrin. 
uh, that rules over the Jewish religion and over the temple and which uh, has taken a position of opposition to Jesus very publicly and very decisively already through um, their mouthpieces, uh, members of the Pharisees who have condemned Jesus as a false messiah who's inspired by evil power. So they are constantly harassing Jesus, questioning him and trying to disrupt his influence on the crowds. This is an important part of the context um, because uh, the, the presence of Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, is the incident and things that they are thinking and saying is the incident that uh, leads Jesus to uh, deliver these three parables that appear all together in Luke chapter 15. Let's just uh, remind ourselves of the exact context. We discussed this, of course, uh, very clearly in the last episode, so I just want to repeat a few things that I said then uh, in order to give a good introduction to this third of these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son or the prodigal son. So if we go to the beginning of the chapter, just by way of introduction, and just quickly remind ourselves of the context, the first two verses tell us very clearly what is happening at this precise moment as Jesus is traveling on the road, going south, heading in the direction of Jerusalem. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here is the context. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law, as I said, they're sort of in attendance most of the time. It appears as Jesus is traveling, watching him closely, as uh, Luke describes in an earlier incident, and no doubt reporting what he says and does to uh, their colleagues and leaders in Jerusalem in preparation for future confrontation and hopefully condemnation and execution of Jesus. That was really their intention. But here they are in the narrative muttering that Jesus is inappropriately relating to the wrong kind of people in their society, sinners, tax collectors and sinners, to use Luke's full expression in verse one. They don't like the fact that he's welcoming them, he's befriending them, and he's even sharing meals with them. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. As I pointed out in the last episode, when Matthew, the tax collector, was called, as described in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, he was so excited by this moment of joining Jesus's discipleship group, he called a great um, meal in his house, and many of his friends who were tax collectors and uh, so-called sinners uh, came and the Pharisees were literally outside the building uh, criticizing Jesus for uh, spending time with them rather than spending time with more respectable people in society. So this isn't the first time that this has happened. And you see this expression, the tax collectors and sinners, which comes up several times in the Gospels, has a particular significance. It means people who are um, not respecting the Jewish religion, not following the Jewish religion, people who are um, uh, outsiders to the mainstream of society for a number of different reasons. The tax collectors were outsiders because they were working for the Romans directly or indirectly, collecting taxes and custom duties, 
and making a lot of money through the process because they held some of what they made collecting taxes for themselves and they only gave part of it to the authorities. Therefore, they were rich, they were materialistic, they were selfish, they could be very exploitative uh, uh, of people who were in a vulnerable position when they demanded taxation of them. So they were really outsiders. Tax collectors appear in the narrative in several forms. We've obviously got Matthew. Um, uh, another important incident with a tax collector is going to take place fairly shortly in, in the story as recorded um, in Luke when Zacchaeus, the tax collector in the city of Jericho, has a surprise encounter with Jesus. So they appear in the narrative from time to time. And the expression sinners has two possible um, applications here. One is a female and one is a male application. The female application is prostitutes and sinners is often uh, uh, a word used to describe prostitutes. Uh, one or two of those type of women appear in the narrative uh, of the life of Jesus. But sinners could also apply to men who were involved in business, in the black marketeering and in profiteering. Uh, we can't be 100% sure. But anyway, all of those categories of people were on the outside of the mainstream of society, were not respected by the religious leaders and were considered to be irreligious. And they weren't very often seen in synagogues. They weren't very often seen uh, in the temple during the festivals. Uh, they were the irreligious part of society. So why should Jesus spend his time with them? That's the question they had in mind. And that provokes Jesus to tell a number of stories. And the theme of these three stories is easy to detect. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. It's people who have got lost, who are far away from God, far away from faith, far away from salvation, far away from security. And what these stories tell us is that in the heart of God is a great desire to reach out to those people who other humans and society feels are lost and even a lost cause, not worth bothering with. So the shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one and his interest is taking the effort to travel around to find that sheep and restore it to the flock and the fold. The woman who has uh, 10 coins loses one and she makes every possible effort in her home to find that coin. And here we have uh, in this story another example, a father with a lost son. And we're going to discuss that in some detail. Parables, of course, have one main point and uh, the details in the parables may or may not relate to events uh, in other contexts. They may not be uh, allegories. Parables are usually not allegories. It's the main theme and the main point and the main truth that Jesus is trying to bring out that is important. But in an extended parable like this one, it's likely that some of the details uh, are significant. And that's what we do find here. So without trying to turn it into an allegory, I think we can very reasonably go through this story and realise that Jesus is giving 
quite a lot of details to help us understand and flesh out what he's really saying about the main characters in the story. And of course, there are three main characters. The father, who owns an estate and some land, who appears to be reasonably wealthy, and his two sons, the older son and the younger son. And what happens between these three people tells us uh, a wonderful story about uh, God's grace and human response to that grace. And of course, he's telling this story particularly to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Verse 3 of Luke 15 makes this clear, as I described last time. Then Jesus told them this parable. So he told to them, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were in his mind, as well as the tax collectors and sinners. And so people were going to be able to position themselves in the story. And the third story is the easiest one to position yourselves in because it's a story entirely about human relationships and about family relationships. Uh, and therefore, we can enter into the story uh, very fully and very easily. Let's read it in sections. We're going to read Luke 15, 11 to 16. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Inheritance was a very important matter in ancient Israel, as in almost all societies. And the oldest son would be inheriting the uh, primary resources of the family, particularly land and property. That was the general pattern. And other children, particularly male children, uh, would inherit in a lesser way, uh, and very often their inheritance would come in monetary or financial form. But here's something unusual. The younger son of this particular man wants to claim his inheritance in his father's lifetime, not wait till he dies, but to claim his inheritance quickly. It was an unusual thing to do. And it wasn't approved of in Jewish society. And it was a request that could be refused. The father could say, no, I'm not going to give you that cash, that money. Um, but on this occasion, he did. Proverbs 20, 21 speaks about this very issue. An inheritance claimed too soon will not be blessed at the end, says the writer of Proverbs. The Jews didn't really approve of this. They considered it 
uh, selfish and considered it disrespectful of the father. However, on this particular occasion, the father agreed to give the son what appears to be a substantial amount of cash. The oldest son's inheritance of the land and property was not in doubt. Nothing had changed there, but the younger son had claimed his inheritance. And he went to a distant country and he lived a life that can be described as irreligious. So a distant country means he went outside Israel, outside um, the, the direct rule of the God of Israel and the direct rule of the law of Moses, outside any accountability to his family, outside any religious or worshipping framework. And he became uh, his own man in a different culture. He created a new identity, spending his money on social life and high living and basically wasting his inheritance in its entirety until there was nothing left. And he ended up in a very humiliated position. He ended up looking after and feeding pigs. For a Jew, this was very humiliating because uh, the Jewish law very specifically stated that pigs were unclean and Jews were not to have anything to do with them. Leviticus 11 verses 7 and 8. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. That's part of the law of Moses. That was the standard rule for Jews. And yet this man, who almost lost his Jewish religious identity altogether, ended up feeding pigs. His bid for independence from his father and his bid for happiness had failed catastrophically. Verses 17 to the first half of verse 20. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. It's a wonderfully powerful expression. He came to his senses in verse 17. This is the pathway of salvation for all people, is to get a full realisation of what it is to live independently of God and how utterly futile that ultimately is. He'd made a terrible mistake. He'd been proud. He'd been selfish. He'd been arrogant. And he had neglected to remember that being in his father's household was a place of blessing and security and provision. And he became much more humble and he prepared his speech. He didn't want to go back necessarily as a son. He'd happy to go back as a servant in the household. He just wanted to be restored to his father. And so he returns home in a very famous and moving episode and description. Continuing to read verse 20, second half to verse 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Father was on the lookout for the son. He had compassion on him. He didn't let him complete his statement, his pre-prepared statement, if you notice. And he was willing to accept his son's repentance, his uh, saying that he was wrong, his expression of sorrow and his desire to be restored to the family home. And so there was joy. There was a feast, tremendous joy. They had a, a feast and they dressed him up in noble clothes, welcoming him back to the family home. Well, you know, the story could end there. That story in itself is incredibly powerful. It tells us so much about a son who is lost and has been found again. We could finish the story there. We could preach many sermons on this parable and just leave it at that point. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. People preach and teach on this story just to illustrate the love and forgiveness of God and the independence of sinful mankind and the journey of repentance back to God and God's reception of them. That's a fantastic message. It's a summary of key aspects of the Christian gospel as described in relational and family terms. But we mustn't forget that the target audience here included Pharisees and teachers of the law. Where did they fit into this? They weren't the prodigal son. They weren't the father. Who were they? How did they position themselves in the story? Well, the next part of the story, of course, brings in the third character, the older brother. And this story is as much about the older brother as it is about the younger brother. And it's as much about the older brother as it is about the father. All three characters are important. They tell us three different messages that are uh, things we can learn from. Verse 25 to verse 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The elder brother has fallen for the emotions and attitudes of jealousy, pride, self-righteousness and legalism. He interprets his relationship with his father purely as obeying commands, fulfilling laws, doing duties and just working hard. He doesn't interpret his relationship with his father as a close human relationship. And yet the father's words to him suggested that he wanted a close relationship with his older son. But his older son was closed in on himself, just working away in the background. And obviously he had been continually angered as he thought about his brother, knowing that he'd taken a substantial amount of money out of the family estate and out of the farm and wasted all that money. And he knew that that money could have been invested in developing their business and their farming and making life for the family and all the servants much better than it was. So he felt really aggrieved, he felt really upset, he felt it was completely unfair. The selfish brother was being rewarded for his selfish actions, so it appeared to him. Now I think you and I can identify with these emotions and often this is how we can feel as we see God's favour resting on other people. But it spoke very directly to the Pharisees. Let's now conclude this amazing story by thinking again about the three characters. First of all, the prodigal son, the younger son. In a way, he was just like the tax collectors and sinners who are uh, the other people listening in in this story. They were the ones who lived selfish, materialistic lifestyles and were irreligious and disrespectful of God. And so the prodigal son is a bit like them. And the interesting thing is that the father did not give up on the prodigal or lost son. And that's exactly the same as what's happening in real life at that point, when Jesus didn't give up on the tax collectors and sinners. He didn't push them far away. He invited them into relationship with him and he challenged them to change their lifestyle. There's no doubt that Matthew changed his lifestyle from when he was a tax collector to when he was a disciple of Jesus. It's very clear when Jesus visits the home of Zacchaeus, as recorded later on in Luke, and spends time with him, that something profound has happened because he starts giving money away and restoring money to people as a sign of his repentance. It's very clear when a prostitute comes in on one occasion and wipes Jesus' feet and um, seeks to uh, gain his um, 
forgiveness and his favour, uh, that, that she is forgiven by Jesus. So Jesus it reaches out to the people on the outside in the same way that the father reached out to his younger son. He did not write him off. He always had a heart for him, always had a place in his heart for his younger son, always hoped that one day he would return, which is why he responded so quickly in the story. You'll notice in the story that the father is on the lookout for his son. And as soon as his son comes back, he doesn't demand a long explanation, doesn't keep him at a distance. He basically embraces him. He welcomes him because he senses that this son has changed. His attitude has changed and the relationship can be restored. Now, the same could happen for the tax collectors and sinners. The same can happen for anybody who's outside of Christ, anybody who's irreligious, anyone who's materialistic and selfish in the same way the tax collectors and sinners were. There's a, there's a way back to God. There's a way open to God for all such people. That's one of the things that this parable tells us. But then what about the older brother? Here is a description of a religious attitude which is contrary to true Christianity, an attitude to religion which is about duty, about fulfilling laws, about not really having a relationship with God, just doing the things you think he wants you to do, keeping him at a distance, feeling rather resentful deep down, feeling rather proud of what you've achieved. That sort of attitude which the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had was being challenged here. It appears that this story is telling us that God, our Father, is calling us to a close relationship with him, that we may serve him out of love, not out of duty. That's the beauty and wonder of Christianity, because Jesus shows us the love of the Father. And when Jesus dies and the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit lives in an individual believer and reveals the extent of God the Father's love for that individual and reveals to us that we can talk to God as our Father. Jesus has made this clear in the Lord's Prayer and Paul teaches this also elsewhere. For example, in the book of Romans, when he says that the Spirit helps us to cry out to God as Father in a meaningful relationship. That's what God wants for each one of us. And that's why this story is a really powerful story to tell us about who God is, what can happen to people who are far away from God, and how traditional legalistic religious attitudes can be transformed into a joyful, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. All these parables end with a note of joy. And this is what I want to end with as we bring this uh, conclusion. Concerning the lost sheep, uh, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 10, after the second parable, in the same way I, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents.
And the father says to the oldest son, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So my concluding point in this talk is to just affirm very clearly that those who are in the church and particularly God himself and the angels in heaven rejoice profoundly with utter joy over every single person who finds true and living faith, who finds forgiveness, who finds a relationship with God, because it is the best possible outcome for any human life. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.